Welcome back or to the Sleep Research Society podcast. My name is Jesse Cook, and I serve as host of the Sleep Research Society podcast, which is purposed to disseminate and discuss the latest findings in sleep and circadian science. Before diving into today's episode, it is critical for me to emphasize that the views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual being interviewed and do not reflect the views of the Sleep Research Society or its affiliates. Also, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as medical advice. If you believe you have a medical problem, please speak with your doctor. And now for an orientation to the topic of focus for today's episode. Sleep health plays a critical role in biopsychosocial development. Furthermore, sleep health in the formative and sensitive years of development can serve as either a protective feature or risk factor for a myriad of proximal and downstream psychological and physical negative health outcomes. Problematically, sleep health is poor for a sizable proportion of adolescents in society, with sleep duration being the component of sleep health most extensively analyzed in this context. Although estimates vary, research predominantly shows that about one-third of adolescents report habitual sleep of insufficient duration when referenced against the recommended 8 to 10 hours of total sleep time for this age group. Furthermore, research has indicated that the scope of the problem worsens on school nights, with the majority of adolescents falling short of the recommended 8 to 10 hours of total sleep time. There are a multitude of intersecting internal and external factors that contribute to the existing sleep health problems among adolescents. Physiological changes during puberty result in notable delay of the circadian system, which contributes to later bedtimes and or difficulties with sleep initiation if attempting sleep at a more traditional time. This well-established physiological change underlies the immense and important effort towards delaying school start times. Delaying school start times better allows adolescents to initiate sleep at a time in alignment with their circadian system while still acquiring sleep of sufficient duration which inherently leads to better alignment of their circadian rhythm's wake period with the academic schedule. Post-puberty adolescents may be uniquely vulnerable to significantly delayed bedtimes, given that research has shown diminished homeostatic sleep pressure accumulation in this age group relative to pre-pubertal peers, with this feature affording better ability to stay awake later into the night. Outside of internal physiological factors, other external factors, such as academic timing and workload, social opportunities and pressures, sport involvement, increased familial responsibilities, and for some, employment, also exist as barriers to an adolescent achieving sleep of sufficient duration. Research has shown that delaying school start times has been helpful in improving adolescent sleep health. Yet, the research has also shown that this change is necessary, but not sufficient as a significant proportion of adolescents continue to struggle with sleep health, which is not necessarily surprising given the vast number of physiological, psychological, social, academic, familial, and occupational factors that exist as barriers to sleep health for adolescents. As such, the development of additional strategies and interventions is warranted to further tackle this significant societal problem, particularly for adolescents who have difficulty falling asleep early enough in the night due to a more pronounced delay in circadian phase relative to their post-puberty adolescent peers. 
In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Stephanie Crowley to discuss their recently published manuscript in the journal Sleep, entitled Extending Weeknight Sleep of Delayed Adolescence Using Weekend Morning Bright Light and Evening Time Management. The manuscript overviews a preliminary evaluation of a novel, multi-pronged intervention that combines well-controlled chronotherapy, gradual bedtime advancement, and implementation of personalized evening time management strategies to modify both physiology and behavior and efforts to increase sleep duration in chronically sleep-deprived adolescents. Results from the investigation strongly support the efficacy of the multi-pronged intervention for advancing the circadian system and extending sleep duration, which also coincided with increased morning alertness and daytime vigilance, as well as decreased daytime tiredness, sleepiness, irritability, and anxiety. I hope you enjoy. Before diving into the interview portion of today's episode, here is a brief background on today's guest, Dr. Stephanie Crowley. Dr. Stephanie Crowley is an associate professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and director of the Pediatric Chronobiology and Sleep Research Program at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Crowley's broad research interest is human circadian rhythms. Her research program, funded largely by the NIH and the NHLBI, aims to understand the circadian timing system and sleep behavior during adolescence and develop methods to connect misalignment between sleep and circadian timing. Dr. Crowley served as a director at large for the Sleep Research Society's Board of Directors from 2019 to 2022 and is currently the Society's Secretary-Treasurer. She also holds editorial roles in scientific journals, including Sleep and Sleep Advances. And now for the interview portion of today's episode. Dr. Stephanie Crowley, thank you very much for taking time out of your schedule to digitally sit down with me in my digital recording room to discuss your awesome research. I will say it's always a pleasure to chat with you. But I'm extremely excited to have the opportunity to bring this outstanding work and, well, your personality to this platform. So thank you for that. And let's launch with this. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you for having me. True pleasure. And I'm glad you're well. Now, Dr. Crowley, I gave the listeners an orientation to your background, an orientation to the show episode itself prior to this interview. Thank you for the biography. It's makes our life a lot easier here on the preparation stage. So I appreciate that. But some of the fun of this podcast and some of the purpose is to showcase personality and to have you tell your story. So can you please tell us about your journey to sleep and circadian research? Sure. My journey, unlike some others, is actually quite linear. I was an undergraduate at a small liberal arts college called the College of the Holy Cross in Massachusetts. And I was a psychology major, and I was taking a, an abnormal psychology course with uh, Dr. Amy Wolfson, and she was looking for undergraduate research assistants to help in her lab. At the time, she was studying sleep behavior in first-time mothers, looking at sleep at the end of their pregnancy and how that might predict uh, mood outcomes after they gave birth. And I thought, huh, that sounds pretty interesting. And I'd never done anything like that before. So I started working with Dr. Wolfson uh, in my junior year, and I just kind of got the sleep bug. 
<laughs> um, so I just kind of got really hooked and, and interested in the field of sleep. So I worked with her for two years and I actually published my first paper with Amy um, in behavioral sleep medicine. The really special part of our collaboration is that we continue to collaborate today. So we're actually working on a project looking at sleep behavior in youth who are detained in juvenile justice systems in Maryland. You know, even after more than 20 years, we're still working together. So it's, it's pretty cool. And when I graduated from Holy Cross, I thought that I wanted to go to medical school. But before I applied, I knew that I would have to take a gap year. And I was really enjoying the research part of things. I knew I really liked sleep and not only doing, not only sleeping, but also studying sleep. So I started looking for research assistant positions and I found one at, in Chicago at Rush with Charmaine Eastman. And at the time, Charmaine was working with, or working on night shift work and, and jet lag. And one of the, the things that really drew me to Charmaine's lab is that all of her work is very applied. So we know that night shift work, for example, is very bad for you. So, it, you know, excessive daytime sleepiness, daytime functioning is bad. Metabolic disorders and obesity are really prevalent among night shift workers. But the question she, were, she was asking was, you know, we know that night shift work is really bad. What can we do to fix it? And that kind of just drew me to, to her work. But Charmaine, she really provided the, the fundamentals of circadian rhythms to me. And I knew that I was really interested in sleep, but also this idea of the circadian timing system regulating sleep. And so she really just taught me the fundamentals of the circadian system. She also offered me a lot of unique opportunities as a post-bac research assistant. I was writing papers with her. I was helping her write grants. I was reviewing papers with her. I was doing a lot of different things. And she said, you know, Stephanie, you're pretty good at this stuff. Why don't you go on for a PhD instead of an MD? And so I gave it some thought and I said, well, maybe I should look at other, <laughs> other things besides my one focus of going to medical school. And so I started looking around at different PhD programs and I knew that I wanted to do circadian rhythms and some sleep and circadian rhythms. And I knew that I also wanted to work with kids in some way. And so the obvious choice to look at was uh, Mary Karskadden's lab at Brown, because as your listeners know, um, Mary really is the pioneer of children and uh, sleep and circadian rhythms in children and adolescents. So I applied to the experimental psychology program at Brown and worked with Mary Karskadden uh, for my PhD. There are many amazing things about Mary's lab too. One of the things that really drew me to her lab is that she's looking at both systems. So she's looking at sleep homeostasis and she's looking at circadian rhythms and the circadian timing system, because without both of those, you can't really understand behavior, right? Especially during development, because all of these systems are changing so dramatically, especially during puberty. And so she really provided the fundamentals of sleep homeostasis, circadian rhythms, the two process model, and the need to look at both of the systems together. And that was really kind of driven into me and then the other thing that Mary really helped me with is writing. She's a brilliant writer. So she really was critical of my writing, but for a good reason. And she made me a better scientist, but also a better writer. She mentored me to write my first training grant. So I had an F31 when I was at Brown with Mary, and she was my primary mentor for that training grant. And that was what supported my dissertation. 
looking at weekend sleep behavior in adolescents and how that affects the circadian timing system. So it turns out that if an adolescent goes to bed later and then has their typical sleep in of about three hours later in the morning on Saturday and Sunday mornings, their internal circadian clock shifts about an hour later by Monday. So it's like having the daylight savings time in the spring, like we just had, it's like having that every single Monday. And so that was kind of what I was doing in my PhD. And then kind of towards the end of my PhD, Termaine Eastman, again from Rush, came back and gave a talk at Brown. And during her visit, we went shopping and we went to a big department store and we sat in some lazy boy chairs. We were talking about my future as we sat in some lazy boy chairs. (laughs) Uh, And she said, well, Stephanie, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I think I would really like to try my hand at writing grants and, you know, the soft money deal, right? And try to build my research program in adolescent circadian rhythms. And she said, well, why don't you come back to my lab and you can do that. So I gave it some thought, you know, so I ended up, that was in 2008. I ended up moving back to Chicago to rush um, and took a faculty position. I didn't do a postdoc. I, I went right into a faculty position and just started writing grants. And of course, when I started writing grants, I knew that I needed to, to get some pilot data. So I applied to, for an SRS grant, and I actually had an SRS Gillen Award that funded some of the pilot data for one, my first R01. And that was incredibly helpful to kind of build up my research program at Rush. And I put in several R01s, and um, I got a lot of feedback from reviewers, which were helpful. But a lot of uh, reviewers said, you're too young. You can't, you can't do this. You can't. <laughs> You you can't, uh, uh, you're too junior and that you, you can't run uh, an R01 level project yet. And I just kept trying. I just kept putting them in, you know, and finally, I, I think my ideas were good enough to be funded. And I had the support of Charmaine and, and other senior faculty as well. And, and so I, I eventually got my, my first R01. So for any trainees listening, it is possible to, to put in an R01. And from there, I just, I kind of built my research program of adolescent circadian rhythms. You know, Mary did a lot to, to kind of make a lot of progress in the areas of adolescent circadian rhythms. But there were still a lot of unanswered questions, especially, you know, what are the underlying mechanisms that are changing during puberty with respect to the circadian system? So I I was really interested in, in mechanistic questions um, and how the circadian system changes during puberty and during adolescence. But I remember that I was trained by Charmaine, who trained me to develop interventions or methods targeting the circadian system. So bright light, darkness, um, sunglasses, melatonin, things like that. So in addition to understanding those basic circadian mechanisms, I also wanted to apply that knowledge to try and help the situation. So we know that circadian misalignment is at its peak during adolescence. We know that sleep restriction is at its peak during adolescence. So what can we do? to help adolescents align their sleep to their circadian clock and to lengthen sleep, especially on school nights when they're not getting a lot. And so those are the really the research questions that I wanted to tackle in our research program. And so kind of that's, and that's what I'm doing today. So that's kind of the, the journey from start to end. Well, a fantastic journey and one that I'm excited to see continue to progress. I must 
applaud you for your resiliency and eventual victory over the R01 game. Congratulations <laughs> on that front. <laughs> Thank you. It's not full panic yet, but there's definitely some underlying, eventually I'm going to reach that stage and everyone doesn't speak very highly of it, fear going on in my body. So I'm glad to hear that there are beneficial and desired outcomes that come from that process as well. So thank you for sharing that aspect on our platform. And I really appreciate that you're attending to, with your research program, a major need for society. And it's not just about better understanding at this point the underlying sleep problems that adolescents face, but what are we going to do about it? And that's why I got really fascinated by this paper. And we'll talk all about this, what we kind of characterize as a proof of concept study later on. But I think it's really encouraging. And I appreciate that you're tackling that. As you pointed out, there's a lot more that we need to tease apart with the circadian system and its influence on sleep. They are not just intersecting, they cannot be separated. They are inseparable, those two components. And yet we often look at them in isolation. And even within the clinical domain, we're not often measuring homeostatic response, right? We're not often measuring slow of activity or something like that that serves as a proxy. And even if we are, we're often not measuring objectively the circadian system through dim light melatonin onset. But the fact that we're not actively doing it in the research domain, I think is the bigger problem. And so I'm glad that you look at it from both sides. You cannot have sleep health without circadian health. And you cannot have circadian health without sleep health. So I appreciate that. Now, when you're not having victory over the R01 game, when you're not addressing a major crisis, if you will, in our current society, what do you like to do when you're not advancing the frontier of sleep and circadian research in your spare time, hobbies and interests? Hobbies? What are that? I'm just kidding. <laughs> writing grants. <laughs> so many of my interests and hobbies have been geared towards what my, my daughter's interests are. I have a six-year-old at home. So we play a lot of Barbies and <laughs> we watch Bluey. Bluey is a great show if anybody has not seen it yet. It's on Disney, but that is also a great show. So a lot of the stuff that we do at home is kind of geared towards what a six-year-old likes. When I do have free time beyond that though, I've really been into audiobooks lately. Podcasts are amazing. I also listen to podcasts. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> uh, but audiobooks have been uh, something that I've really loved to do, just kind of taking a walk and uh, listening to audiobooks. We also have a dog. We have a dog named Honey, who's a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, and she needs her morning walk. So that's what I do. I walk her and then I listen to my, my audiobooks in the morning. Wonderful. And a great way to send a strong signal to the circadian system with the mm -hmm. morning movement and bright light there to regulate and hopefully align to be an ally for your sleep at night and also your vigilance during the day. And I'm elated to hear that despite maybe not the most substantial amount of time available for hobbies and interests, that time for family is still available despite all the awesomeness that you're doing professionally. I still find myself struggling for the work-life balance as you emerge from kind of a trainee life into a young investigator, into a more senior member. It just feels like there's a never-ending list of things that are on your plate and more comes in the doorway. So I, if I'm feeling that, I can't imagine what someone at your stage is feeling versus later on as well. And so I'm glad that you're able still to prioritize that. I think that's very important to have a work-life balance. And I think everyone does it a little bit differently. So I can still have family time, 
say on the evenings and the weekend, but sometimes I have to work kind of weird hours. So if I have a deadline, I'll put my little one to bed and then, you know, stay up a little bit later to work. But that's not all the time. So it comes in waves, right? And, you know, I think at different stages of your career, I think you can, you just kind of have to find some time for your hobbies and your interests and taking care of yourself. Otherwise, it's not worth it. Beautiful. I heard earlier that you have initial interest in becoming a doctor, uh, an MD, a physician, if you will, in college. But circling back to earlier, more in your formative, maybe adolescent years of life, or even earlier on, what did you aspire to be when you grew up? Older. <laughs> you you, you <laughs> accomplished that. <laughs> that was easy. Wow. <laughs> No, my mom always said that I just wanted to be older all the time. I just wanted to be older. No, I think when I was probably in middle school, I think I wanted to go to business school. I wanted to do something in finance. I'm not sure where I got that idea. Probably people around me were also in finance or business. And it wasn't until I was in high school and I had an amazing biology high school teacher named Iris Bro in Duxbury, Massachusetts. And she inspired me to love science. And she was, um, she was an amazing teacher, but just very kind. And she was, she really motivated me to kind of explore other opportunities in science. And so I kind of got this little kernel of inspiration to kind of pursue something in science. Of course, when you're in high school and you like science, well, you have to become a physician. <laughs> you have to go get your MD. There's nothing else that you can do, right? I was very, I was very focused on that. And I, I, so I, this was my junior year in in high school, I believe. And so I went into college thinking that I wanted to go to medical school. And it really wasn't until, until I was at Rush with Charmaine and she kind of opened my eyes up to other opportunities within science. Very cool. And I too, at one point in my life, aspired to be the physician Mm -hmm. going to medical school to develop a specialty in psychiatry. It was actually Dr. Bootson's research lab that steered me otherwise and my interest in behavioral interventions for the problems and not necessarily the pharmacological aspects of it. So I'm really excited for this research because it definitely aligns with where my values are and where I think we need to put more efforts to address many of the issues in our society, not just the adolescent sleep health problems. But right now, Stephanie, you do find yourself as a sleep and circadian researcher. If you weren't, what would you be? That's a hard question. If I was not a sleep and circadian researcher, (laughs) I'm not sure what I would be. But one thing that I've thought about is I really love office supplies. (laughs) I can't believe I'm saying this. Ever since I was a kid, I really loved back to school shopping and organized office supplies. I would love to own an office supply store. Very odd, but yeah, that's kind of what I would think. It may be odd to some. It is not odd to me. I get excited about the prospects of working at your office supply store in the future because I too share that affinity and passion for office supplies. There's nothing better than like a brand new pen that writes exactly the way you want it to. You never want that ink to run out. Oh, I just get chills thinking about that. So not weird at all. Yeah. Mary used to, she knew this, that I was obsessed with office supplies and new office supplies. So for my birthday, she would buy me a new set of colored pens. <laughs> I just loved it. Loved it. Oh, there's such a great feeling too of being organized with your planner on the first day of school. Although I quickly learned that 
two weeks into the semester, no matter how old I got, that fell through the cracks, right? But it felt good at the beginning. So if I never leave graduate school and I have to find a different vocational direction, I really hope you open that office store so that I can find employment somewhere. (laughs) You got it. Now, I feel uniquely privileged today, Stephanie. I know we're just here to talk about your research. This wasn't targeted in any capacity to open this discussion. It just so happened to organically arise. But you're the first guest. Maybe I should say it differently. Technically, I had an interview with the current training member at large, Darlene, and the incumbent, Miranda. And technically, they or Darlene's currently on the board of directors. So in reality, you're not necessarily the first guest from the board of directors on the podcast. But- You're the first non-trainee member of the board of directors to bless us with your presence on the podcast. So I I feel I needed to take that opportunity to spend a little bit of time on what the board of directors is, how someone becomes a member of the board of directors, and what are the kind of attractive features of the board of directors. So let's start with this, Stephanie. When did you join the SRS board of directors? So I was elected um, director at large in 2019. So that was a three-year term. So 2019 to 2022, I was a um, director at large. And then in 2022, I was elected as the secretary treasurer. So I'm the current secretary treasurer of the SRS board of directors, um, as well as the, the foundation. How did you become director at large? How did you find out about that opportunity? So I've been involved with the SRS for a really long time. I was a member starting when I was an undergraduate at Holy Cross. So I, in a way, kind of grew up in the SRS and I wanted to stay involved because I knew how important it was to networking and my career development. One of the great things about the SRS is that we really care about our trainees. We want to hear from them. We want to help them develop. We want to give them opportunities. And I was the beneficiary of the SRS. You know, my, as I said, my first award from the SRS Gillen Award that provided pilot data to kind of start my research program, which was really, really important. And I was involved in committees. So I was involved in the Educational Programs Committee, which is no longer a committee anymore. It's kind of been reworked into another focused committee. So I was very involved with committees and trying to volunteer and, and, and help the SRS as much as possible. Um, I did have to take a break when I had my daughter. And so I took a, a few years hiatus. And then um, Jean Duffy from Harvard, she reached out to me and said, you know, I think you would really be an asset to the board. And I was wondering if you would be okay with me nominating you to the board of directors. And at that point, I think I had a two or three-year-old. So I thought, oh, this might be a little much, but I, I really thought that it was important for me to do that because I would be one of the few people that is representing pediatric sleep um, and circadian rhythms. And I, I just wanted to add to the diversity of the scientific content to the board. And so I decided to run and I was elected in 2019 and it's been a wonderful experience. I mean, it's um, we get to meet really amazing people and, and learn from really smart, inspiring people including the late Tika Hall, who I joined the board of directors with in 2019. Uh, I worked with you, Jesse, in, in 2020, right? 2020, 2021. <laughs> All the years are kind of meshing together as the I was going to say it gets a little happens. hazy across those years. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so I get to meet trainees that are wonderful like you. And it's just, um, it's a really good 
place for discussions and where the field is going and where the society is going. And I learn a ton from my colleagues. I learn so much from their careful deliberations of specific issues. And I like to have the opportunity to really work on hard issues, but also trying to develop programs that will sustain members across um, the spectrum from trainee to uh, full professors. And so it's really been fun kind of developing these new ideas to try and support members. You know, one of the newest uh, initiatives we had was the SRS Dependent Scholarship, where, where we're offering some funds to defray the cost of dependent care while you travel to the sleep meeting, for example. That could be a sick spouse, it could be a kid, it could be various situations. And so, you know, things like that just make me feel like we're doing something for the membership to try and prop up people's careers, increase the pipeline, um, make sure everything is inclusive. And it's just been really, like, really fun and, and satisfying to be on the board and to make sure that these initiatives are propelling the, the field forward, but also supporting the scientists and the people that um, are doing all this work. Phenomenal. And I must thank you for the many years you've provided and selfishly the support you provided me when I joined the board for that year, when I was lucky enough to be the training member at large and also the support you provided to the initiative for the SRS podcast. As you mentioned earlier, you love podcasts and that came through when I pitched this, I opened my mouth and said, why don't we do this? And you were, I think the first to respond. That's a good idea. So I thank you. I don't know without your support at that time, if this would have come to be, or if it kind of would have laid to rest, if you will. But I just really appreciate your support on that front, your dedication to the trainees. Uh, I think that can get lost with some of the more senior members at times when you're more disconnected from that era of your journey itself. And so I really am elated that the SRS brings on more young investigator, junior members into these roles so that attention can be placed on that front. And you certainly are exemplary there. So thank you for that orientation to the SRS Board of Directors, our shameless plug, if you will. (laughs) And now let's transition a little bit to science. And to kick us into gear, we'll play our keyword association game. Stephanie, more or less a word association game. So I will say a word or a set of words. Some could argue a phrase. And I will just ask you to respond with the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. I love it. And for the (laughs) listener out there, you couldn't see it. There was a smile. There's a lot of vigor. I'm feeling really good about this keyword association. (laughs) All right, Dr. Crowley. First phrase, adolescent sleep health. Preventive. (laughs) I don't know if that makes sense. No, I think if we can improve adolescent sleep health, it's a preventive measure in terms of emerging psychopathology and other physical health outcomes such as obesity and and metabolic disorders. Beautifully said. I was there with you with just the preventive, but I like the unpacking a little bit further. And (laughs) again, these are the sensitive periods of development, right? If we can get these things dialed in now, the long lasting implications are so significant for individuals and society at large. So you, you really nailed it there. Next phrase, time management and sleep health. Everyone needs it. (laughs) Well said. 
yeah, I think we all get lost, you know, especially in the evening when we're relaxing or even checking our emails at work, whatever it might be, we kind of lose track of time and we stay up a little later to answer another message or we stay up later to watch another episode of whatever it is on Netflix or, you know, so I think we can all lose time, lose track of time, especially in the evening. I mean, we all delay our bedtimes in some ways. And if we can be more cognizant of time and more cognizant of what we're doing with our time, especially in the evening, I think we could all improve our sleep health in in some way. Oftentimes for me, it's important to try and tease apart whether a delayed bedtime is due to time management issues per se, or bedtime aversion. You know, Mm -hmm. maybe being less excited about the next day, your work, the life you have, and that's not necessarily you not tending to the management of your time. You are managing your time and you don't want to go to bed because that's the period of your day that is most enriching, most looking forward to that four hours of watching TV or whatever it may be where you can disconnect from the stressors. So I think really important stuff. We can all do better on both of those, I think. Now, as far as our keyword association, next phrase, delayed sleep onset. It's not just circadian timing. Nailed it. Yeah, I think um, there are many factors that we need to think about when, you know, when you see a patient clinically. Of course, we have to think about the circadian timing system, but it could be the homeostatic sleep system. It could be other factors that are just displacing sleep in adolescence. It could be homework. It could be TikTok. It could be (laughs) socializing. There are a number of factors that can contribute to delayed sleep onset. It's not just the circadian system. And I think just keeping that in mind when we're thinking about research in this domain, but also clinically as well. Well said. And it's often the intersection of multiple factors that compound in many ways. What about bright light therapy? It's hard to do, especially for an adolescent. But I think there's, there are ways that we can make it more feasible. And even for adults, too, who are working full time and might not be able to fit it into their, their workday in the morning, it is a little bit difficult to do. But I, I think we can work to make it easier for people to sit in front of a bright light box or um, use a bright light visor or whatever it might be. I think also we need to work harder to try and get insurance companies to pay for these things. Yeah, that elephant in the room is is a tough one to to tackle on just about every front. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll land the keyword association today with this final phrase, phase response curve. Really difficult to construct. (laughs) (laughs) That was my first... That was my first big project, my first R1. And when you're having kids, adolescents, they were 14 to 17 year olds in the lab. They were taking a nap, two hour nap every four hours across three and a half days. And that was a pretty hard study to, to run. They did, uh, each person did that twice. So, um, but they're very, it's, it's been a very valuable tool, hopefully clinically, but also in research for, for my work. And so I, hopefully the phase response curves that we constructed for adolescents They've been helpful. There are hard protocols. The sacrifices that sleep and circadian researchers make. I know hand up here for my mentor's K award when I was a post-bac researcher, I slept on the floor of my office for two hours for 86 nights across a two-year period. So, you know, wow, some of that was due to me wanting to be there 
during the middle of the night in case the recording crashed and I had to troubleshoot, whatever it may be. But these are the sacrifices we make and we grow stronger from it. <laughs> I think that's a great place to land our keyword association. I think we're prepared for flight now. That's a weird way to say it. We land the keyword association, we're pre- prepared for flight, but we are prepared for flight. So as I mentioned in the introduction, today's episode focuses specifically on a recent investigation that you and your colleagues published in Sleep, which is entitled Extending Weeknight Sleep of Delayed Adolescence Using Weekend Morning Bright Light and Evening Time Management. So I think some of the stuff we've covered thus far already sets the stage for the investigation. So instead of asking Dr. Crowley to discuss what fueled this research, because I think it's apparent at this point we have a need to address adolescent sleep health and we need interventions that can be applied to potentially extend sleep duration, especially in the individuals where it's most concerning, the lower sleep duration, the delayed sleep onset, those factors externally with uh, academic demands, social demands, those individuals, that phenotype is going to be at a heightened risk for these problems and it's going to be very short-changed on sleep health. So I think it, it makes sense why you went after this. Let's say it differently. What were you hoping to accomplish or what aims were you tackling with this investigation? Right. So as you already articulated very well, um, the two primary things that I worry about when it comes to adolescent sleep health is that it's often too short. So many adolescents are sleep restricted, uh, especially on school nights. And there are a number of factors that we've already kind of discussed that contribute to that, including changes to circadian and sleep physiology in the brain that make it easier for them to stay awake later into the evening. We also have psychosocial stuff going on. That's a really fancy word for basically all the stuff that they should be doing. Um, So they should be exploring their social network and they should be doing their homework and, and, and things like that. But some of that stuff can actually be quite alerting. So not not only the content, you know, Joey just broke up with Beth or whatever it might be. So the content can be alerting, but also some of the devices that we're using in the evening can be somewhat alerting as well. And then, of course, we have school start times on the other side of that equation that are waking up teenagers too early uh, to get sufficient amounts of sleep and also waking them up too early for their biological clocks, so for their circadian clocks. So we have circadian misalignment and sleep restriction going on. And so there's a huge push for later school start times, as we already mentioned. And I think that is gaining traction, certainly. But for adolescents that are really struggling to try to fall asleep early, you know, I think there there are other things that are needed in addition to delaying school start times. So we really focused on the sleep onset part of the problem. What are the factors that are keeping adolescents awake? And again, that could be their physiology. Their circadian clock is a little bit too late, but it could also be the other stuff that's displacing sleep. So being on social media, homework, and other factors like that. So what we wanted to do was to have a multi-pronged approach. We wanted to kind of target the physiology, the circadian physiology, and try and shift their circadian clock earlier. And we also wanted them to go to bed and start their dark period a little bit earlier. So by um, using bright lights in the morning, we can shift their rhythms earlier. And by shifting their dark period a little bit earlier, we can also shift their rhythms or phase advance them. 
So we can change their physiology, but for an adolescent to choose to go to bed is a different story. So they might not necessarily listen to their physiology. They might not say, okay, I want to go to bed because I'm, I'm tired. They want to stay up and do homework or whatever it might be. So we really thought it was important to have a behavioral component to this intervention. So one of the things that I noticed when we were piloting this project was a lot of kids who were going to bed late, they told me, well, I just kind of lose track of time. You know, I kind of just get swept up in video games or swept up in, you know, scrolling in my phone or uh, I had too much homework and I just, I stayed up late and I kind of lost track of time. And so we thought, well, maybe it's just a matter of managing their time a little bit better. And maybe we have to give them benchmarks by 930, you have to set an alarm to stop scrolling on your phone or try and get your homework done a little bit earlier in the day, right after school or during study hall or something like that. So just try and help them facilitate their time and manage their time a little bit better so they can go to sleep or they could actually get into bed earlier. So those were the, the two approaches or the two pieces that we were trying to test to get adolescents into bed a little bit earlier and to fall asleep earlier. And again, to, so to lengthen their sleep, but also make sure that their sleep is not misaligned with their circadian clock. Beautiful. And I love that you're, again, approaching this from a multi-pronged perspective, because it's going to take a multifaceted intervention that can be adaptive and personalized to really move this forward. And this investigation alone does not provide all of that, but it's a jumping off point that I think is really, really, really awesome. So Great work there. And you touched a little bit upon kind of the methodology, but just broadly speaking, how did you go about designing the study from recruitment? It really seemed that you were focusing on internal validity with a lot of the exclusion criteria that you included, and you were targeting a certain subset of adolescents that maybe were on the one end of the spectrum of poor sleep health, if you will. But yeah, if you could talk a little bit about the design itself and what you were specifically looking at, I think the listeners would really appreciate that. Yeah, so I, I, that's a really good point. We were recruiting, we were, we were really targeting teenagers, high school age students, so they're 14 to 17 years old. But we were targeting kind of the end of the distribution in terms of sleep duration and how late they were going to sleep. Because we wanted to test this intervention in teenagers that could actually benefit from it. So our sleep inclusion criteria were they had to report seven hours or less on school nights in terms of their sleep duration on average, and also that they were falling asleep at 11 p.m. or later on school nights, and then midnight or later on non-school nights. And so this is a community sample. It's not a clinical sample. They were not diagnosed with delayed sleep-wake phase disorder. And we really wanted to really hone in on this group of adolescents that are otherwise healthy to try and test something that they could use in their everyday life and, and who could use it the most. Perfect. So by the end of, I think you recruited somewhere of like 1500 individuals that went through the screening process. And in the end, it was winnowed down to, I think a little bit less than 30, I think like 26 or so in each group or so. So quite the rigorous exclusion process there, but I think that aids again for the validity of these findings and that we can trust. From there, individuals were randomized into groups, intervention or control, and then they were ran in a block protocol. What, if you could do, kind of give big picture of what the intervention looked like itself? Sure. Yeah, so we did block randomization because we didn't want to run 
the intervention group and the control group together because we didn't want the control group to know that they were the control group, right? So we called the control group Team Mario, and we called the intervention group Team Luigi. <laughs> uh, I so love we never that, use by the those way. words. <laughs> we never use those words. And so for the intervention, what we did, well, actually for both groups, they had a two-week run-in period. So they slept as they usually slept. We didn't put any restrictions on them at all. They could nap. They could pull all-nighters. They could go to bed whenever they want to. They could wake up whenever they want to. I just wanted to see what they were doing at home in real life. I didn't want to put any restrictions over them. In the intervention group, we had a two-week intervention. So we had two weeks of baseline and then two weeks of an intervention. Everyone came in further into the lab and they lived in the lab for two days on a weekend. And we measured their circadian phase. We measured cognitive cognitive performance and, and other outcomes like that. And before the intervention group left on Sunday, we sat down with them and we said, okay, this is going to be your new bedtime. And it was an hour earlier than what they were doing during their uh, run-in period. And we sat down with them for about 20 minutes and we said, okay, uh, your new bedtime, for example, is 11 p.m. This is just an example. It kind of varied between participants. Now, what do you usually do after school every day? And what are some of the barriers for you to get to bed by 11 o'clock? What are those things that will prevent you from getting to bed by 11 o'clock? We had a little bit of a discussion and kind of talked about what they needed to do, such as homework or part-time work. And we talked about um, what are the things that they like to do. We tried to come up with a plan. And from there, we said, okay, well, why don't we just come up with two behavioral goals? What are some things that you can change about what you normally do to try to get to bed at 11 o'clock or whatever the bedtime was? And so, you know, whether it's setting an alarm at a specific time to stop doing something or to try and get homework done at a specific time, as I mentioned before. So they would try and follow this, what we called a sleep routine. We also had things like, you know, try not to have caffeine after noon and other sleep health guidelines within that, that sleep routine protocol. And then for the intervention group only, after that first week of trying to go to bed earlier, they came into the lab and we gave them morning bright light. So we started the bright light about two hours after the midpoint of their habitual sleep. And that's supposed to target the phase advanced portion of the phase response curve to light. So this is the time where light is going to produce the largest phase advances. So we started about two hours after their midpoint of, of sleep on Saturday morning. And then we shifted it an hour earlier on Sunday morning. And on both nights, they got eight hours of sleep. And so the point of this weekend with morning bright light, it sounds pretty terrible. Like, oh my gosh, why would you get me up at five o'clock in the morning to give me lots of bright light? This weekend is really supposed to be like a bolus of light to kind of reset the rhythms really, really quickly. And then the expectation is when they go back to school, they should be getting up pretty early and they will be exposed to at least room light when they wake up. Hopefully they'll be also exposed to morning sunshine when they wake up and they're on their way to school. But essentially, so this weekend is supposed to reset their rhythms and then kind of it would be maintained during the following week. After that bright light weekend for the intervention participants, we sent them home again and said, okay, now we want you to go to bed two hours earlier. And sometimes we had to adjust their sleep routine. And, you know, if they said that they were going to set an alarm at 9.30 to stop socializing, we might have to shift that to 9 or 8.30. And, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that it was going to be feasible for them. 
So they were trying to fall asleep two hours earlier than normal on the second week. And then they came in, everyone came in for that a final weekend in the lab where we measured their circadian phase using the dim light melatonin onset and other cognitive outcomes. Now the control group, they did the same run-in period. They, we got their, um, their baseline weekend with their dim light melatonin onset. But for the, that two-week period where the intervention participants were following all of these um, instructions to go to bed earlier and the bright light weekend, the control group was not given any of those instructions. They weren't given a sleep routine. They weren't given any morning bright light. They did come in for what we call download appointments. So there were about 30 minutes to an hour where we check up on them, make sure that they were doing the protocol, you know, recording their, in their sleep diary and so on and so forth. So they did get some attention while they were sleeping at home as usual, but we did not give them those specific instructions or the bright light. Excellent. That's a, a phenomenal overview. And I have to draw attention, as you did, to the amazing flavor that you built into the design with just starting off sleep routine. I really like that. I thought that was very, in some ways, clickbaity, but that stuff is attractive to that population. And we got to think about who we're targeting with these things and whether or not they're going to be attracted to it. Uh, I think that's way better than your prescribed sleep habits or something like that, (laughs) right? Like, I like sleep routine. And then the blinding through team Luigi and team Mario, I thought was phenomenal. So (laughs) thank you for adding that flavor into science. Science can be fun. (laughs) Yes, science can be fun. (laughs) Now, generally speaking, so we're comparing kind of baseline to post change across objectively measured circadian timing through the dim light melatonin onset. We're looking at sleep behaviors and characteristics that were objectively measured through actigraphy, which I thought was a really amazing strength of your project. You could have easily done it with sleep diaries, but I think actigraphy adds a level of confidence there that we may not have gotten. Also, again, thinking about the population might be better not to put the burden on those people to fill out the diaries and potential reporting issues as well. Uh, And you were looking at various outcomes as well in subjective measures, as far as one's level of vigilance, alertness, mood. So what did you find across the investigation? So overall, it was pretty effective. In the intervention participants, we were able to shift their rhythms by almost 40 minutes. And their final circadian phase was almost an hour earlier compared to the control group by that second weekend. So we did impact their circadian physiology. And we were also able to increase their sleep duration. Total sleep time increased by about an hour by the end of the study. And interestingly, I, I, I forgot to mention that we did look at their subjective ratings of mood and sleepiness and how easy it was for them to wake up in the morning. And we did that on a, a daily sleep diary. And we were able to improve mood and improve sleepiness and alertness, improve concentration and irritability. So overall, I think we, we were able to improve the sleep health of the intervention participants. And I think uh, we might get to this later, but there seem to be some individual differences in how we were able to do that, though. Beautiful. And we will get there very, very soon as we dive deeper into the weeds. And I think that does a nice job of providing the, the big picture overview. So why don't we go a little bit deeper into the weeds? And one thing that I was thinking about here, Dr. Crowley, is, you know, you utilize this block design approach, which I makes sense why it's implemented largely from a blinding perspective. So you don't give off any real information about kind of group dynamics and things like that. Do you think that has any influence 
on the outcomes, given that for a student, the stress level demands of an academic calendar, the availability of social activities, things like that may have played a role into some of the findings? Possibly. Are you asking about kind of how or when a participant was enrolled in the study, like during high stress exam time or things like that? Yeah, definitely. Was there any ability to capture that type of information and how it may have influenced if we were kind of looking at the granular at the individual level, why some responded and why some didn't, could those variables be meaningful? Obviously, we can't do everything in a singular study, but going ahead and looking forward here uh, in future investigations. No, that's a really great point. I mean, everyone responds to stress differently, but what happens when you're in the thick of tests the next day or some you know academic deadline, we tend to stay up later and cram for an exam or write the final paper or whatever it is. So that certainly could have impacted the, the sleep outcomes if one individual didn't shift their sleep onset on a few nights compared to some others. We do have that data though. We do have data on uh, what they were doing every day after school and in the evening. It was kind of an hours tracker system. So every hour they would tell us what they were doing for the most part over the last hour. So we do have that data and we could look at that to see if from night to night, whether specific activities were preventing them from going to bed earlier. I'm glad that there's that data exists because I, I just, I mean, it, it was such an impressive investigation. I was like, there might be something here that could be looked at, especially with one of the findings that wasn't necessarily surprising to me, given my understanding of some of the effects that can happen when you do advance a circadian rhythm or trying to encourage someone to go to bed sooner, even gradually, you might see in the early phases more difficulty falling asleep. And I think that's what we saw in the investigation here is that sleep onset latency, not the timing of their sleep period, but the amount of time it took them to get into sleep when they initiated their sleep efforts actually increased in the intervention group. It never eclipsed 30 minutes. I think it on average leveled off at the end at 20 minutes when it started somewhere around eight or 12 minutes or something along those lines. But I wonder if that was consistent. I didn't look at the variation, but maybe there was some individual who was heavily influenced during their collection period by some peak level of stress associated with workload or testing that thus would also be observable in their sleep latency. So maybe looking at it from that capacity could be interesting, but I'm glad that data exists and kind of similarly thinking about the dynamics academically Let's look at them seasonally. We talked about maybe more socialization opportunities, but do you think the amount of evening daylight can have an influence on one's dedication to time management? I can imagine that in, say, December, when it's dark much sooner, Jesse, me, is going to have a better ability to attend to their sleep routine than, say, in July when there's much more light in the evening and I'm going to be drawn to being out later and there's these competing forces. What are your thoughts there? No, that's certainly an issue. I mean, I, I think that daylight, also weather plays an important role too. So um, especially as in after school sports get moved outside and so on. So I, I think that could have an impact. The study was done during the academic year, so September to May. So we, we didn't run any of this during the summer when they were on vacation, because in the U.S., our, our summer vacation is usually June, July, and August. 
And so there could have been other things like prom and prepping for prom in May that could have impacted whether someone wanted to go to sleep you know, earlier or later. So there are certainly those types of things that are impacting sleep behavior. And I, I think the, these are all really important things to think about, not only just physiology, but other social constraints and psychosocial factors that will impact your sleep and an adolescent's sleep. Yeah, well said. And and I also think, and we'll get into this very soon as far as next steps and real world practicality and translating this potentially into a viable intervention of sorts, maybe that information can be explored more rigorously to better understand the optimal timing of applying the intervention. That maybe it's not best to be doing this at certain times a year due to seasonal issues or due to academic issues, right? Or factors. So I think there's just some cool stuff there and certainly wasn't a criticism. It was just something that came top of mind on that front. And I think I I just wanted to add too that I think it's important for us as a community, especially in, in behavioral health and behavioral sleep medicine, is these are things that adolescents should be doing. You know, they should be worrying about prom. They should be worrying about who they're going to date and like who their friend circles are. They should be worrying about their academics. This is their job, right? And so I, I think the point is well taken, though, that, you know, developing these types of interventions, we have to be mindful of what else is going on. And maybe there is a time of year that would be more suitable to implement something like this that's going to ask them to go to bed earlier. But we also want to maintain that that healthy sleep behavior. So it's that maintenance piece, I think, that's going to be more difficult in stressful times or exciting times like prom or graduation or or uh, or things like that. But I just, you know, I just want to make the point that these are all things that teenagers should be doing. And it's very normal. <laughs> yeah. And going back to your analogy earlier or reference earlier, I think it was Joey broke up with Beth. You know, Beth should feel some negative emotions that may impact her sleep accordingly, right? right? That's called life. So we're not removing those things. We have to be mindful of those things when building these types of interventions. I love it. Now, we've talked about how there was some subtle differences in response to the intervention itself. I will say, generally looking, I forget which page it's on, but you have a very elegant graph that neatly shows, in some ways, like a bland Altman plot is the way it was in my (laughs) brain, where you could see how the spread in response, the effect of the intervention changed in response to one's baseline DILMO, where those who had the most delayed DILMO, if I remember correctly, showed the biggest response. Is that correct? Yeah. So what we found was, if you if you look at that plot, we're looking at the, the earliest DILMOs on the top and the latest DILMOs on the bottom. And what we found was those with the earliest baseline DILMOs so the, the earliest circadian phases, they really didn't need to move much. They were already early enough. The problem was that their sleep was just super late. So they were going to bed like six hours after the onset of their melatonin. Whereas the latest DILMOs, those who had the latest circadian phases, they actually shifted more compared to those with the earliest. And so they needed to move. So when I looked at kind of the spread of or the individual variation in how much the circadian timing system moved, it came to me that, well, maybe the, the adolescents with the earliest DILMOs, they probably don't need a bright light weekend. They probably just needed some time management skills or 
some other behavioral component to try and shift their sleep onset a little bit earlier. But those kids with the latest ILMOs, those with the latest circadian phases and late sleep, they needed something to shift their physiology earlier. So they needed that bright light in the morning. And they probably also needed the behavioral components. So, you know, unfortunately, clinically, you know, and in research, oftentimes, we don't have access to the DILMO. We don't have that data to say, oh, this person needs light and this person doesn't. So in my head, I think it's really important. One of the things that I learned from the study is that it's really important to use this multi-pronged approach to use both bright light and the behavioral intervention to try and shift sleep onset earlier, because we don't know necessarily if, if that DILMO is going to be late or not. So I think that's one of the big take-home messages that I got from this study is that we do need this multi-pronged approach to try and improve sleep health. Love it. And the elephant in the room there is, can we get more accessible objective measurement of one's circadian system? Because if we can start there, then we can start really providing personalized interventional strategies, as you just brilliantly outlined. And it's wonderful that this is a good proof of concept because the vast majority outside of a couple outliers, which is something I want to talk about, showcase the shift directionally that you were expecting. You know, you were shifting, you wanted to have an earlier Dilmo onset. And and you saw that in just about everybody. But there was, I think, two people that had an opposite directional shift. And there's only one individual that I was like really interested in where it looked like they had like an hour, an hour and a half delay in their Dilmo pre to post. Was there any information that could have shed clarity on why that happened? No, those are just real data. <laughs> That's what I'll say. <laughs> Those are data, you know, Uh, not everybody's going to do what you want them to do. And I'll just say that this person's sleep did shift earlier, but their Dilmo did not. And we don't know why. Maybe the bright light hit them at the wrong time. Maybe, you know, and we weren't as precise for that person for some reason. But I don't really know. All I can say is that the data are the data. But for that one person, for some reason, it didn't work as we wanted it to work. Yeah, kind of it is what it is kind of thing, right? right? That is Good science is not trying to make your findings, but to best interpret the findings that emerge and set the stage to have valid findings, which I think you're doing a great job with. And perhaps that's the individual that is biasing or putting a lot of leverage on the sleep onset latency findings. Who really knows as they go more delayed from a physiological perspective, but are shifting behaviorally more advanced. Maybe that's the individual putting leverage there. We recently had an episode focused on inter-individual differences to light sensitivity, specifically looking at genomic factors. And I imagine there's a lot of factors that go into play into one's response to chronotherapy, if you will, and things that we're not considering and even measuring or factoring in. Do you think that individual inter-individual differences to light sensitivity could have played a role in this? And how might we better understand those dynamics as we get to more of a personalized approach going forward? For sure. So I think there's lots of studies showing variability in phase shift responses. So if you look at any phase shift responses, even that date back to the 90s, you're going to see lots of variability in phase shifts. I think there is probably some genetic contributions to that, to that different response, um, to differences in responses. I think also it's behavioral. So we know that 
if someone is exposed to a lot of bright light before they they're exposed to a bright light treatment protocol like the one we tested in this in this study that they're going to be less sensitive to the bright light exposure where if you're in a cave and <laughs> in the dark for a week before you are exposed to a bright light protocol then you're far more responsive to the bright light therapy and so i think we have to look at genetics i think we have to look at what your light history is because all of these things will kind of play into the individual differences that we see. And I think also there's something to be said about how much sleep they're getting. So I think they're, um, you know, they're, in adults, there's data showing that if you have, if you sleep restrict yourself, you're, if you're chronically sleep restricted, you're less responsive to light in the morning. And we're actually finding the same thing in, in adolescence now too. So I think it's the amount of sleep you're getting, the amount of light or dark that you're getting preceding bright light therapy. And also there has to be some physiological component in terms of it, you know, taking in the light and interpreting the light signals. And that is pro probably genetically regulated. Fascinating. As you were describing that, a thought came up that I would be remiss not asking you, given your expertise in this area. And it may be more of a hypothesis or theoretical at this point, because I'm not sure that anyone's really looked at this from a research perspective. But clearly our flexibility to adapt changes across the lifespan. And we talk about those sensitive periods during formative development years because we are very impressionable, right? And I'm wondering, has anyone looked at differences in flexibility to respond to things like light therapy and shifting the rhythm at this age relative to an adulthood where I imagine it's much more difficult and rigid and kind of structured at that point? What I can say is across development, your light sensitivity changes dramatically across the lifespan. We know from Monique LeBourgeois work that, you know, light sensitivity in toddlers, they're extremely sensitive to, to bright light and actually extremely sensitive to dim light as well. And as the, as the eyes age, then we become less sensitive to, to light. But I'm not sure if anybody's looked at flexibility of the system to respond to light. So I don't, I don't really know. Yeah, and I appreciate you saying that because I don't really know either. But I think it's kind of an interesting place to look into because yeah. we recognize that that's a reality in life in general, that we become kind of more defined and it's harder to adjust things when you're 60 years old, teaching old dog new tricks, so to speak. But that's <laughs> real in the physiological sense too. I know that very well in kind of the mental health space and trying to make changes there and seeing response. But this seems to be something of import here, especially if there's something notable about like eight to 10 year olds versus 12 to 14 year olds versus 14 to 18 year olds. And maybe it then lends insight into dose-dependent effects and alterations there about the amount of lux or the timing of the lux delivered or the duration of the lux delivered. So mm -hmm. I think really cool stuff. And that's why I love having this podcast is there's new information out there for others to chew on. Maybe you'll tackle it yourself. Uh, mm -hmm. It certainly won't be in my research program, but I hope somebody does because it's very, <laughs> very interesting. Before we get into kind of real world practical application, because I think that's a big one here and kind of the next steps, I just wanted to ask about another factor that potentially could have influenced these results on the individual level, which is the involvement of parents and family dynamics in general and the habits of parents that can be imprinted on offspring 
And also, as you're going through an intervention like this, when they're back in their home environment, how those types of things could potentially interfere with the time management that an adolescent was trying to implement. So were you able to capture anything about the parents? Were they involved in all? Is that something you're going to look at in the future? That's a great question. You know, we know that as adolescents get older, parental involvement in bedtime um, kind of goes away. It's not that it's not that parents can't be involved in in setting bedtimes, but we find that typically they, they start to not set their teenagers' bedtimes as they get older. In our study, we do have some data looking at what household rules they have. Do they set their child's bedtime? Do they require them to come home at a certain time? And so on and so forth. And so in in this study in particular, I think it varied in terms of how many parents were involved with helping their, their child follow the protocol or fo- follow the time management schemes. My sense is that for the most part, the teenagers did it themselves. So there wasn't as much parental involvement as you might expect. But again, it probably varied a little bit from family to family. And you really you hit the nail on the head, though, because there's going to be different circumstances for every adolescent. We had a very diverse group of adolescents that were enrolled in this study, but they had different family situations. You might have one parent at home only, or you're going from one parent, you're living with one parent and then living with another parent halfway through the week. Mom and or dad might be working night shifts. So, you know, if you have a mom that's working a night shift and they're not there at bedtime, you know, what happens to the sleep schedule of, of the adolescent. So there are different factors like that, that I think we're not examining enough. We started to collect those data to see if there's, you know, especially with this, this nighttime, or sorry, this night shift work uh, question, I'm, I'm kind of fascinated by just to see how parental influence may or may or may not affect the adolescent, you know, and there's also, it, it will depend on the adolescent. So if they are very, aware of the time and aware of sleep health and aware that they need to go to bed to not feel sleepy the next day, then it might not be an issue. But if you have an adolescent who likes to um, do other things besides sleep in the evening and you have a night shift uh, mom with a night shift work or, or something like that, then it might just might come together as kind of a perfect storm, if you will. So, you know, I think there are certainly these questions that we need to ask and we might have some of those data that data from this study that we could start asking those questions, but we haven't really looked at that carefully. And it's a difficult one to look at because there's layers there because it's not just about the parental habits. I think it's also about the relationship the child has, the adolescent has with their parent. Sure. Right. I feel privileged coming from a two parent household that I not only respected my parents, but really, really, really loved them. And I had a really strong relationship with them. But not everyone is afforded that opportunity, right? We don't get to choose our parents. And so if you're in a home where maybe don't have the best relationship with your parent and they're adopting to one strategy for their life, well, you may choose to inherently adopt the complete opposite strategy in a sense of rebellion or because I don't want to be this person, whether that's consciously or unconsciously, right? So again, there's just layers of complexity and that's science in general. I just think it's a really, really interesting one that can be an inhibiting factor to sustainability here over time. And I think that really brings us into a kind of our landing deeper dive segment here, which is the long-term vision, if you will, the word choice was intentional, of bright light therapy 
because clearly this was internally valid, a proof of concept study that was highly successful in showing what you wanted to show. But it may not be feasible or truly practical for this to be implemented, given that you brought individuals into a laboratory setting for a reset weekend, you're applying the light in the middle of their, or a little bit after kind of the midpoint of their sleep period. So we're invasively waking them up. What's the long-term vision for this research program building an intervention? That's a great question. The other thing is we paid these participants to complete the study. And again, you hit the nail on the head here with, this is really a study to see if this type of intervention would work, right? So we found that overall it does work, but if how can we sustain these benefits? And I forgot to mention that we did have a subset of adolescents continue on for three weeks. We had, I think our final sample, it was relatively small. We had eight participants in the intervention group and six in the control group continue on to maintain this sleep schedule for three weeks. And then we did the same exact thing at the end. We had them come into the lab for a weekend and we measured their DILMO and cognitive measures and so on. I'm in the process of writing those data up, but the idea here in terms of feasibility is you have this reset weekend and then ideally try and maintain that, that circadian phase and that sleep behavior. So kind of an early dark period starting and morning bright light on your way to school, hopefully. And after that, you kind of have these booster weekends. That's kind of like how I'm imagining it. And remember, I wrote this, probably wrote this discussion during the COVID vaccine, the COVID vaccine frenzy. So we have the bolus and then the boosters. So we have the the reset weekend. And then I imagine having booster weekends where maybe the adolescent has a little bit more flexibility on their weekends to go to sleep a little bit later, but still wake up at the same time, maybe take an afternoon nap in the middle of the day, because we know that doesn't really impact their circadian phase too much. And then maybe instead of both weekends, they just sit in front of the light box or have a light visor or go outside into bright sunlight uh, when they wake up on just Saturday morning or just Sunday morning, whatever, whatever day fits their schedule. And so these booster weekends are there to help maintain their phase. And hopefully you don't need these reset weekends very often, maybe after a break or after summertime where their, their sleep schedule might be a little bit more delayed. But hopefully you don't need to have these reset weekends all the time. It would just be like maybe once, maybe twice a year. And so that's kind of where I hope this would move towards is you can have a little bit more flexibility on those weekends where you don't have to sit in front of a light box both weekends because an adolescent's not going to do that. I'm I'm a realist. (laughs) Uh, You know, I I know that that's not going to happen. But trying to understand what's feasible and what an adolescent would do on those booster weekends, I think is important, an important next step, really. I look forward to seeing, first of all, the information on the durability get published. I get excited for that just to see what what maintained or not. And then also, I love the long-term plan. And, you know, an elephant in the room right now or a barrier, I guess, is the accessibility of a clinical light box versus a, you know, commercially available, I have a circadian lamp in front of me, right? And the convolution that comes between those differences where the clinical light box, that lux is going to be so much different and the magnitude of effect is going to be so much different, but those aren't readily available. One thing I was wondering in my wonky brain, I have a screen in front of me right now. Just about every adolescent has a laptop, right? To some degree or computer 
maybe not everybody at this point, but it's becoming more ubiquitous across that age group. Is there an app? Is there going to be a developed app in the future where these screens can become maybe not as effective or as high lux as a clinical like box? But that to me seems like low hanging fruit of just turn my giant screen into something that shows a bunch of bright light on me. Is that something that's in development? Anything you're aware of at all? That's a brilliant idea. I don't know. I don't think so. (laughs) I mean, so what we do is when adolescents are in the lab, we have the screen in front of them, like a computer screen. And then we have two light boxes on either side of that. So they're already in front of their screen with these two big bright light boxes next to them. But that's, you know, that's a brilliant idea. I I love that. And a lot of light boxes are commercially available. They can be a little bit expensive. So some will go for as little as $50, but you know, then you have $200. Sunshine is free, but for an adolescent who lives in Chicago, like right now, it was still dark when I woke up at six o'clock this morning. So they might be on their way to school in the dark, depending on what time of year it is. But this is another really important thing that we need to speak more about how can we get light boxes to be covered by insurance for say an adolescent with delayed sleep like phase disorder seasonal affective disorder and and things like that how can we get these types of light boxes covered by insurance and that is a longer conversation to be had perhaps another time yeah so it can be a barrier to to getting bright light treatment for sure is the cost And one that hopefully can be addressed by the awesome individual out there that's going to create the app that becomes a free light box in our computer. I'll even pay $1 a month if you allow that, but make it free. (laughs) Well, I think that's a good place for us to, to land for today. And we've talked about kind of your vision, if you will. If anyone's out there that wants to get involved in this type of work, what are some research questions that have arose for you that maybe you might not be able to tackle with your current focus, but is there anything that you think is kind of low-hanging fruit for others to potentially chew on to progress this area? You know, I think a lot of people are doing various things and kind of working towards the same goal of trying to increase sleep duration in adolescence. I love your idea of trying to come up with more feasible methods, for example, you know, a light box in your computer. But I think we, we have to really think about what adolescents will do. What will they latch onto in terms of making it a daily habit, whether it's a light box or a light screen or whatever it might be. And what are some things in the evening that they'll do? Will they set an alarm on their phone or, you know, install an app that has a time management, evening time management plan for them? So I think one of the more broad questions we need to think about is with any intervention that we're doing with adolescents, what is feasible and what are they going to do? And I think that's how we're going to move the field forward and help adolescents get more sleep. Beautiful. And to close down today's interview, first off, Stephanie, Dr. Stephanie Crowley, thank you as always for being the awesome person that you are and (laughs) for bringing that personality to this platform to discuss this research. You know, we definitely went over the time that I advertised to you, and there was a lot more that I think both of us wanted to talk about. (laughs) But again, that shows the import of this research and and why I wanted to showcase it across this platform. But I have a final question for you, and all the guests get this one. And Mm. if your answer is to continue on the research program you're on, then 
I think it's wonderful that your current direction aligns with your idealistic direction. But if you were afforded unlimited funding, there's no constraints at all, no issues getting it through the IRB, nothing like that at all, to explore a singular sleep and or circadian research topic, what would you investigate? I think I would continue to investigate the current questions that we're investigating. (laughs) So maybe that's a good sign. But I think there's still a lot to do. And I think, you know, the end goal is really to develop a a behavioral sleep health program for adolescents, children and adolescents, and looking towards something like a step care approach. You know, what can work for a specific adolescent, but maybe not for another adolescent or a combination of approaches that would work for a specific group. And so I think individualized behavioral treatments, I think are going to be really important. And not everybody's the same. Not everybody comes from the same family dynamics, the same family structure. And I think that's kind of the end game is, you know, what can we do to really improve sleep health in adolescents? And what are the tools that we can add to their toolkit to improve their sleep and their circadian health? Well, I fully support that research direction. I know you alluded to it. There are many others out there also trying to push the progression of this research forward so we can reach that ultimate end goal as well. And I hope that it's somewhere on the proximal horizon because some of the data that I've seen come out as far as the amount of sleep duration, I mean, just in your sample, it was like five and a half hours on average of sleep habitual sleep duration. If I had that chronically, I'd be a real grumpster. And there'd be Mm -hmm. a lot of issues for me and Mm -hmm. I don't need eight to 10, right? Technically I need seven to nine hours of total sleep time per night. And I'm more about seven and a half. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's a major need here. I love that that is an end goal and I think it is approachable. So I applaud you and your colleagues for this investigation. I will get out ahead of it and applaud you for your future investigations as well. (laughs) I thank you again for your time, Stephanie, and I wish you all the best. You too. Thank you so much, Jesse. My pleasure. And that concludes this episode of the Sleep Research Society podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions for content or ways to enhance the podcast, then please feel free to send an email to sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is sleepresearchsocietypodcast at gmail.com. Before officially closing down this episode, I would like to directly thank the leadership of the Sleep Research Society, as well as the board of directors for their support of this initiative. Additionally, I'd like to thank the Sleep Research Society Communications Committee for their efforts in the development and maintenance of this podcast. Also, I'd like to acknowledge the other members of the podcast team for their efforts behind the scenes. This includes Katrina Burroughs and Shivani Gianni, who serve as podcast managers as well as Dr. Mohan Dutt, who produces these episodes. Furthermore, I'd like to thank chronobiologist Dr. Rulof Hutt for graciously providing the podcast intro and outro music. Lastly, I'd like to thank the community of fantastic sleep and circadian researchers that comprise the Sleep Research Society, as well as all other listeners of this podcast. Thank you, and until next time, sleep well.